There's a list that comes out uh, every fall. It's been coming out since 1998 from Beloit College. I'm guessing this is the only thing that put Beloit on the map. Um, I've never heard of them. But it's called the Mindset List. Anyone ever read these? Uh, And it's basically the what freshmen, incoming freshmen, don't know. So because of when they were born, things that just have never existed and what they don't know. And um, here's some of the things on the most recent list. Um, When they see wire-rimmed glasses, they think Harry Potter, not John Lennon. And when... uh, they hear the phrase press pound on the, uh, or the phrase press pound on the phone is now translated as hit hashtag. Celebrity selfies, meaning a picture of you with a celebrity, um, celebrity selfies are far cooler than autographs. I wish I had have realized this back when I was um, meeting George Brett, third baseline for the Royals, um, and instead of trying to ask for his autograph and getting shot down back when I was a kid. I could have just taken a selfie because he was right there. Um, Or had someone take a picture and it would be worth a lot today. Uh, Ralph Nader has always been running for president. (laughs) Um, (laughs) In their lifetime, a dozen different actors have uh, portrayed Nelson Mandela on the big screen. Uh, If their parents come to uh, parent weekend... They might be looking out for Madonna or Sylvester Stallone, who might be visiting their kids. Um, Women have always attended the Virginia Military Institute and the Citadel, which is interesting because when I was at Clemson in South Carolina, uh, VMI was right near there, and that was the big raging debate while I was in college. This is kind of trippy. Hong Kong has always been a part of China. Um, Joe Camel has never introduced one of them to smoking. Bosnia and Herzegovina have always been one nation. Uh, nicotine has always been recognized as an addictive drug. Students have always been able, this is very good news, to dance at Baylor. Um, I don't know that they're able to dance at Moody yet, but, but Baylor they can. Uh, women have always been dribbling and occasionally dunking in the WNBA. Go, go WNBA. Uh, Hell has always been associated less with torment and more with nothingness. It was really interesting for me to see that show up on on the list. Um, I kind of watch these things every year. The the one a couple years ago was really fun for me um, when it started doing all these geopolitical things. Soviet Union has never existed. Never existed. Um, For most of their lives, U.S. airlines have been bankrupt. Manuel Noriega has always been in a U.S. jail. Uh, there's always been only one Germany. Um, they've, ha- they've never heard anyone actually ring it up on a cash register. Coffee has always taken longer to make than a milkshake. Smoking has never been permitted on a U.S. Airlines, and they have never had to distinguish between the St. Louis Cardinals baseball and football teams. I remember that growing up. Anyone else? Um, but on this list of uh, a year or two ago, uh, by the way, this one's funny. Uh, there's never been a skyhook in the NBA. That's a thing of the past. So you're dating yourself if you know what that means. Madden has always been a game, not a Super Bowl winning coach. Um, but non-denominational megachurches have always been the fastest growing religious organizations in the U.S. It's interesting to see, oh, and Michael Moore has always been showing up uninvited. 
But it's interesting to see some of these religious things show up on this kind of secular list. And what these lists show me every year is that so much of what we take for granted as background knowledge just isn't true of, of younger generations. And that's always the case. Background knowledge is, is always passing out and being replaced with a different set of kind of background or cultural or, or generational um, foundational kind of truths. And it's a really interesting thing because when I became a pastor, there was something I was against with regard to background knowledge or what I took to be the church or, or what I believed to be the church. And I was, I was kind of against that um, form of church because I had grown up and the dominant kind of religious thinking of, of when I grew up in my childhood was conservative evangelicalism or really, really uh, fundamentalist kind of Baptist ways of thinking. So you had this strong kind of legalism that was out there. And so when I came into ministry, I was against legalism. I still am. And, and I thought that the big battle, the, the biggest battle of all was to somehow um, label that thing and say, we have to get to this authentic Christianity that doesn't look like that, talk like that, um, vibe like that, because it's, that's just a horrible representation of Christianity, that rule-bound kind of legalism. And that was my pivot point. And what's really interesting as I look at it today is I don't know that, the, I don't know that that's the dominant pivot point. I used to make the mistake of um, when I would start talking about things, I would use the phrase Baptist in a negative way. Um, and it would slip out. Because for me, I just used the word. I, I grew up in um, Baptist churches and worked in, in Baptist churches when I first came into ministry. And that was just shorthand for me for some of those parts or the darker parts of Christianity. What I saw is the darker parts. Um, but that doesn't mean everything Baptist was bad. It doesn't mean that there's not great Baptist churches out there, but somehow I would let it slip. I would just use Baptist as shorthand. Um, and what I've realized now is people don't even, when I say that accidentally, Baptist, people don't even know what I'm talking about. That's not a part of their, their background cultural kind of stereotype. Like they don't have that. And so it's not that they get offended because they know somebody that goes to a Baptist church that they love. They just look at me like, I don't really know what you're talking about. It, that's, that's like uh, ring it up. I, what does that mean? And, and so it's an interesting thing to realize that the conversation or conversations slowly change and slowly morph. And I really believe that the emerging or, or probably one of the most significant emerging conversations is more a byproduct of the seeker or the watered down um, form of church that we've lived with now for 25, 30 years than it is the legalistic side of church that a lot of us were exposed to earlier than that. And what I mean is for, for quite a while now, since uh, about 1980, the dominant form of church is, is really been speaking to the lowest common denominator. We're gonna level the playing field and we're gonna to speak to the lowest common denominator and we're gonna make sure that we're sensitive to the people in the room and the way to be sensitive is to not say anything really objectionable and to say it really in its most simplistic form so that they can uh, grab hold of, of just the, the, the low-hanging uh, low fruit of Christianity. And often what that means is we're just going to help them realize that the Bible is relevant to their lives, 
by distilling down the principles that the Bible talks about for good living to a couple action items. And, and this culture, the baby boomers, um, this, that, that generation is really going to be able to see that the Bible is, is in that vein of self-help literature that really does make things work for your life. And so the Bible will become relevant and, and that's how it's going to kind of go forward. But I think what we saw in that whole move is that the children of that generation weren't really taught anything significant. And this is a broad generalization. This doesn't hold for certain churches. It just means as a generational distinctive, they weren't really taught theology. They weren't really taught the high truths or the high fruit of the tree that, that somehow made them realize there's, there's something very significant to our faith and to our religion, to scripture, to God. God is really big and somehow all of my life needs to bend toward that. Not that Christianity or scripture is some self-help thing that I can utilize as I pursue my best life now. And, and I really think we're living in the backwash of, of that conversation. And people are leaving the church by the droves because why does it really matter? It, it's really not that significant. I can find my self-help somewhere else. I can find meaning somewhere else. I can get principles somewhere else. But I don't have to bend my life to something. And so what's really scary about that is that it, it says a lot to the growth of a form of cultural Christianity that doesn't look anything like New Testament Christianity. And so the question is, um, is conversion happening? Are we converted? So if you'll turn with me, I want to look at uh, Luke chapter 9 and Peter's confession of Christ here. Luke chapter 9, and Jesus is asking these disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And I think that's a that's the question that still gets asked in culture today, right? So what do you, what do you, what do you make of uh, Jesus? Who is he to you? Does Jesus really matter? I mean, is he just a great teacher? Or is he the son of God? Is he the savior? Is he your savior? Like, where do you fit Jesus? And nobody really says, yeah, I'm anti-Jesus. I don't like the guy at all. I think what we tend to find is that people want to have a little bit of a watered-down version of Jesus that, hey, he was a good guy. He taught good things. I believe in that. I'll accept that. That'll fit with my life. But not many people want to talk about Jesus as Lord. So the same thing is happening here in, in Luke 9, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus says this, uh, who do the crowd say I am? And they reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. So they give the same answers in, in that day. They want to relate Jesus or define Jesus by virtue of someone else that they already have a category for. Do you see that? So that's still our starting point. If we're getting it wrong, our starting point is to take a category we already have, Buddha, Gandhi, and we're going to say, I, I, somehow I'm going to relate or define Jesus with reference to that category I already have. It's what they're doing. And Jesus says, verse 20, well, what, what about you? Who do you say that I am? 
And Peter answered, the Christ of God, the anointed one, the Messiah of God. And Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone uh, this to anyone. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day rised, uh, raised to life. But then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very, uh, his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God coming. So the first point I want to make is this. If we're, if we're going to talk about New Testament conversion or New Testament Christianity, I think we have to grapple with this fact that it's a daily thing. Conversion is daily. Now I think there's one defining point where you choose to break with a pattern of, of going your own way or serving your, yourself or whatever that might be and you break with that and you turn to following Christ. But if we're learning from Christ, Christ says that one decision to begin down this road is a decision that really gets renewed on a daily basis. Every day when you wake up, I'm there. And you have to choose once again to follow me. And that choice you make every day to follow me is, is, is laden with sacrifice and suffering and I would say awkwardness. You're gonna carry your cross and, and people are gonna demean you for following me. Um, it's gonna be awkward. So, the tension will be there that you're gonna be ashamed of this. That people are watching, your peer group is watching, people in the world are watching and somehow that's awkward and you want to be a bit ashamed and to come out of the spotlight and be a little less awkward and a little bit more with the crowd and Jesus is saying, if you're going to be converted, you're not going to be with the crowd, you're going to be with me and you have to choose not to be ashamed and if you choose not to be ashamed, then I won't be ashamed of you on that day. And so every day I'm standing there, every day you wake up, and, and certainly there's a trajectory and a pattern and a momentum, but when you wake up, that choice is there to pick up your cross, to sacrifice, to suffer, to serve, and, and to shoulder that awkwardness. And that's a daily choice. Conversion is a daily choice. There's something really interesting about the way we've framed up conversion We've, since the 1800s, made it all about one prayer that we pray, about asking Jesus into our hearts. Um, and, and there's so many things that can be said about that. And the first of which is, that's not the biblical phrase for conversion. The biblical phrase isn't Jesus tucked up into our heart. The biblical phrase that Paul uses over and over is that we would be in Christ, and Christos, that we're in some sense tucked up underneath his robe, his righteous robes. And so where he goes, if we want to stay with him and, and, and be connected with his righteousness, we go where he goes. He is our Lord and our King and our Savior and our High Priest. And so we submit into that and we go where he goes and where he leads and then we follow. And it's not that 
I'm accepting Jesus into my heart. That's not the New Testament language. Jesus uses language of being born again, that you have to literally be born again and have this new reality, this new life, this new identity, this new family that you're a part of, which means you have a new name, that everything has changed. The old has gone, the new has come, that this radical spiritual rebirth is happening and that everything is gonna be different. He doesn't say you gotta make, um, you you gotta just pray a prayer so that, so that you can carry me around in your heart wherever you go, and I go where you go. It's no, you're being born again into this new spiritual reality and this new spiritual family of which I'm the head. And this body of Christ, which you are members of, submits to and is directed by the head. And so there's this whole crazy thing about how we've gotten conversion language really weird and when we, when we do it with this, I'm going to just invite Jesus into my heart, we really make it about us on our terms. And then the question is, then what? I don't know, then nothing. I guess I just go live my life and it's pretty cool that, that I now have Jesus. And that's, that's new language um, that came out of the Second Great Awakening, towards the end of the Second Great Awakening. It is not biblical language. It's not biblical language. Yet that's what most of us have grown up with. And I think the problem with that language is it's simply this. When you get a, a, a virulent strain, so something that's infectious, and you water it down enough, what do we, what do we say that that does when, when we give people shots of, of really gnarly diseases, but in a watered-down kind of form so that it's in them, what do we say that that does? It inoculates it inoculates you. So I've grown up and I've just watched it over and over that people will do what they think is the right behavior, the right pattern, the right formula of accepting Jesus into your heart and then think, now I've done the thing and I must be the guy now. And so I'm going on with my life and then all of a sudden I get rocked with suffering or some real trial in my life and I'm like, I don't understand I did the thing, and I have the Jesus baby doll in my heart from, uh, you know, Talladega Nights, right? Dear baby Jesus. I mean, humor says a lot about how we see things, right? Um, But I did the thing, and so he was supposed to go with me, and he was supposed to make sure that my life was good. That That was the promise, wasn't it? And now all of a sudden, everything's bad, and we take the doll, the, the, the wobbly head doll, and we take it out and shake it, and we're like, you know, maybe it'll work. It's like when you shake an electronic device. That's not going to help. It's, it's an electronic device, right? You're just going to break it. But we, we shake our Christianity and go, there's something must be broke here. I'm a bit perplexed. We plug it back in, and, and our life is still fraught with suffering. And then we get really frustrated, and we begin to feel sorry for ourselves, and we stomp our feet, and we go, it's not working. And then we begin to question whether it was true in the first place because it's not doing what it, it was supposed to do or it was promised to do. And then we all of a sudden say, well, something else has to fill this, this hole that I've got in my heart Something else has to speak to my suffering if Christianity won't speak to my suffering. And then we go looking for a different religion or a secular form of religion or 
behaviors or classes taught on Tuesday night with who knows what. And we go searching for that and we walk away because we were inoculated to the virulent uh, strand of Christianity. The thing that, that was radical and that we could orient our whole life around in this little inoculated thing that happened to us um, when we really needed it to work, didn't have any power. What's been most amazing about being able to travel to Africa or even just having African pastors as friends is that their Christianity, by and large, is built on suffering. Like the whole thing grows out of their experience of suffering. Their experience of colonialism and tribalism and wars and uncertainty and disease or poverty or just challenges um, that, that somehow Christianity grows out of that life context. So right off the bat, Christianity is relevant. Christ is relevant to that context. And so when they hit suffering, they already know they lean back into their faith, not away from their faith. Jesus said the Son of Man has to suffer and to die. And so now if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. What's amazing sometimes is, is this realization that when we do missions trips, there's this Im implied idea that we are bringing something to people that don't have it. And what a lot of African pastors realize is they have something that we need from them and that we don't even realize it. That we need to understand the value of family. That we need to understand the value of relationship. And, and sitting around a table without a time on, on, on dinner or that evening. And that we need to understand what Christianity has to say about suffering. Um, and that that's a part of the Christian life. They, they see that we're deficient in these ways. And so conversion, if we're going to understand it rightly, is a choice. It's a daily choice. It's a costly, awkward, sacrificial choice to follow Jesus. So conversion is daily. Conversion, awkwardly enough, in the New Testament is also for the religious. Conversion is for the religious. So Luke 1, 16 and 17 is talking about John the Baptist and it says this, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's a really interesting concept that John the Baptist is taking the religious and saying we have to bring you back to this position of readiness to be converted or to have this experience of the Lord. And we see that that was the same as the prophets of old that, that he's in the vein of, that, that the religious or the spiritual or the ones that went by the name of Yahweh, the Christians, if you will, would slowly turn away and they would turn away to other things. They would still think of themselves as belonging to God, but their hearts had turned away and they're, they're now far from God. And in that position of being far from God, the, the prophets would come and God would be through the prophet trying to help them understand that they needed to come back to the Lord in some sense to be converted back to, to truly being able to identify with the God that they think they already identify with. Isn't that ironic? 
It says in Romans, it says that all throughout the Old Testament, this phrase, not all Israel is true Israel. So when you think of Israel, the people of God, not all Israel is true Israel because conversion is a heart matter and, and it's more than just the people that externally identify with God. So another way of saying it is not all the church is really the true church. Not all the Christians are, are really the true Christians. And so out of this big circle of us that would identify ourselves as Christians, there are a whole lot of Christians that need to be converted to Christ. Isn't that ironic? When I stand up here on, on Sunday mornings, sometimes I don't feel like preaching. Oftentimes, I don't feel like preaching. My way of getting ready to preach is I always start to pray, God, help me convert some people this morning. Like there are souls in the balance and eternity is in the balance. And it's not just the people coming in whose lives exploded on them and they know nothing about you, God. But there are some lost sheep of Israel here. There are some Christians who do not really know you even though they claim you. Help me convert Antioch to being the true church. I don't mean that offensive at all. I just mean what we're dealing with here is so much bigger and more serious than I think sometimes cultural Christianity allows us to understand. And so conversion is for the religious. Jesus even said this in Matthew 15, 23. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And then he relents and yields and helps this woman who's not an Israelite. But Jesus came to the religious people of his day and he wanted to save them. So if we put it in today's vernacular, and I have a friend who has a book by this title, Jesus came to save Christians. He came to save you and me. And, and I think sometimes it's good to put ourselves in that spot and to say, Jesus, you came to save me. How's that, how's that working? How's that going? How are you finding me? Are you finding me willing? Are you finding me with my, my hands open and my heart supple? Are you finding me um, receptive to what you're trying to do in saving the lost sheep of Israel? Or are you finding that I don't have time for you, that I, I think that I've already got it, that I'm not really listening to what you're saying, that I'm going my own way. How are, how are you finding me in this project, in this program of trying to save Christians? I, um, I love history, so I'll confess to you, I don't know that I'm the most tender guy that way that I think, Jesus, how are you finding me? When I ask those questions, it's usually because I'm thinking of Jonathan Edwards or John Wesley or some of these great giants of the faith, and they wrestled with this in their books and in their writings and their letters, their prayers all the time. Am I really saved? Is this just a sham? Am I really just using this thing? Is it really smoke and mirrors? Or am I actually saved? Have I truly been converted? Have I been willing to, to release my heart and to let God take it and do something new or different with it? And I read those guys, and I'm like, dang, that's really cool. They wrote that like hundreds of years ago. That's the way all history starts for me. It's like, that's cool. It's old. Um, 
if you love history, you know what I'm talking about. But then I begin to go, wow, nobody, I don't know that I know too many people that talk like that anymore. So then the question comes up, interesting. So we talk differently culturally now, today, than they did then. Is one better than the other? I don't know. Is one right, one wrong? Or should we learn from history and let it influence us or speak to us or challenge us? And so when I begin to pray, God, that's an interesting question. How is, how is my confidence with regard to my salvation? How should it be? Like Peter and John talk about in their letters, that when we live these kinds of life, uh, lives, when we ask these kinds of questions, that we gain a greater assurance or we have a greater confidence that on that day we're marked. And I'm like, wow, that's an interesting thing. These guys wanted us to analyze or pay attention to how confident we are in our closeness or our friendship with Christ. We just don't hear that in the church in America anymore. If you prayed the prayer, you're good to go. That's, that's what I've heard in the church in America for 20 years now. If you've prayed the prayer, you're good to go. But John and Peter and Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley after them, they have this way of conversing about it, saying, God, don't let me take anything for granted. Let me somehow know that I'm with you, that I'm close to you. Turn with me to uh, um, 1 Corinthians 9. I think we see this in Paul too, 1 Corinthians 9. So he's talking about preaching the gospel. And he's just like, man, I'm compelled to preach. It's what I want to do. This is what I'm about. And, and he goes on. He says, man, I've become all things to all people that I might win some. I've become a Jew to the Jews and a Greek to the uh, Greeks and a Roman to the Romans. Like I'm trying to identify with people. I moved to Bend and I started drinking microbrews. Like I'm trying to, you know what I mean? Like that's what Paul's trying to say. I'm trying to connect with people. People matter for me. My whole calling, my life, my trajectory is about people that I'd be able to preach this message of conversion that you can become a Christian, someone who follows in the way. Do you know that, that they were first the disciples, the ones who followed Jesus daily, disciples, woke up in the morning and followed the rabbi, disciples, that they were first called Christians at a church called Antioch. We read that in the book of Acts. So Christians ought to be biblically just shorthand for those people who follow, those disciples that have a rabbi. And it, and it goes on and it goes on and it says this in verse 24. So 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly, and I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul says, I don't want to just serve a religious function here. 
and preach this good news of grace, forgiveness, that I can identify with Christ and be counted as one of his. I don't want to just preach that message and be functional. I myself want to inherit the prize. So I beat my body and make it a slave. In other words, I wake up daily and I, a religious person, an apostle, make sure that I'm choosing Christ. And I do that with this full intensity. If, uh, I, I've brought some pictures for you. So this is pictures of uh, Greek pottery. So these ones uh, are at the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, in Washington, D.C. Go back real quick. Um, so you've got boxing going on there, and you see a judge standing off to the left. The next one is running. Um, the next one is, looks like kickboxing, so I put that in there just so you could see that MMA began with the Greeks. Um, but you see in these, so, so Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, okay, the Corinthian church. And if you go to Corinth now, it's a beautiful place, really high um, hill where the temple was. So when Paul is writing to uh, the church at Corinth and he's talking about what's going on with that temple up there and the temple prostitutes and that you have yet to be fully converted because you're still serving up there at that temple and then coming and gathering as Christians down here, that's not, that's not, that's not Christianity. And so Paul like has all this warning to the Corinthian church that they have to be converted and come out from that and, and truly follow Christ. And, and he's, he's talking to them, and, and in Corinth, it's one of the more preserved Greek cities, right? So beautiful ruins, and they have a, a museum there that has pottery like this with running and fighting. And so Paul, when he's writing this letter, he's talking to these people, and he's saying, I'm going to use your language, because remember, I identify with the culture to where I'm going or who I'm preaching to. And he's saying, you get racing, and you get fighting, and when you race, you don't run aimlessly. And when you fight, you don't do it like your eyes are closed where you're just swinging aimlessly. When you run, you run with a direction and a purpose and a goal. When you fight, you fight with kind of an aim and a target and you know what's going on. And so you're going to train in such a way as to excel or to be better at it than everybody else. You're going to win the race. You're going you're gonna to ex excel at or be the victor in the fight. And he's saying, that's how I live my Christianity. My Christianity to me is like a race that I'm running and I'm, I'm trying to compete at it and be victorious and excel and get the prize. And I'm, I'm, I'm literally fighting this fight as to at the end of the day, not lose the fight, but to win that fight. And so all of my life is shaped that way. Even though I'm a religious person, I wake up daily and I aim my life this way. I train this way so that at the end of the day, I'm found with Christ and I'm not disqualified even though I preached, even though functionally I was somehow tied to Christianity. And so we see this idea that conversion is daily. Conversion is also for the religious. And then uh, conversion is for the desperate. I mentioned Jonathan Edwards. He was in the first Great Awakening. 
And it began at his church, this, this mass kind of revival. And he didn't know what to make of it. And so he wrote a book called A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections. The word affections here is like passions. And it's this treatise concerning religious affections. And in it, he's trying to apply 12 tests to discern. Or he's trying to come up with what are the tests, and, and he ended up with 12, to really see if somebody's heart has been converted. Or, or whether they're just getting caught up in this kind of great awakening and becoming a cultural Christian. So he really wanted to know um, what, are, what are the marks of true conversion. And he begins to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, love is the chief of the affections. Uh, as it were, it, it's the fountain of them. And he goes on and says, for it was not by men's having the gifts of the Spirit, uh, referring to spiritual gifts, but by their having the virtues of the Spirit that they were called spiritual. So this is how you can distinguish the carnal man from the spiritual men. Carnal men do not produce the fruit of the Spirit, but spiritual men do. And so it was with Christ. So it's real interesting. He, he ends up identifying that same thing, that it's not the functional side of the faith. It's not gifts and talent and influence that ultimately mark you out as belonging to Christ. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the virtues, the character of Christ evident in your life that begins to mark you out as being Christian. That somehow you've, you've replaced an old self with a new self that's growing and it's alive and it's beginning to look and feel, um, taste and smell like that thing that is truly alive um, that is of the Lord. So the same church, uh, or actually Colossians, um, Colossians, Paul talks about putting on the new self. You can read along in Colossians 3. I printed it out because I wanted to read it from the New, new American Standard Bible. But Colossians 3, listen to what Paul says. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things of, of above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the thing above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life now is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Not Christ is tucked up and hidden in your heart. Um, that, you'll see some of that language in the New Testament, but it's certainly not the thrust of the New Testament. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, Considers the, uh, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. The things that you used to serve, that used to be the biggest things, that your life used to bend toward, that somehow you were defined by, that that stuff, the stuff of the crowd, is not what you're going to be doing anymore. Those things are idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So you used to walk with it when you were living that way with that crowd. And that's where judgment's going to come. And it says, now you also put them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. When was the last time we woke up in the morning we said, God, banish anger and wrath, and malice, and slander, and abusive, critical speech from my mouth. It's fascinating to me how quickly and often people criticize church these days. And I think, I think it's one of my litmus tests. It's like so easy to say, 
and they'll say a criticism. I'm like, it seems like you got a lot of criticisms for the church. Oh, yeah. So it's pretty easy for you to pick out the things you're critical of, of and, and to talk about those things. Oh, yeah, the church has a lot that, that it doesn't get right these days. And then I'll ask, in all of those criticisms of the church and all of those conversations and finding the language to explain why you're so frustrated about the deficiencies of church, how many times have you prayed for the church? It's the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. How many times have you prayed for the church? I don't find many people that pray for the church. It's like a lost art of prayer. But I think we can hide a lot of critical speech under somehow we have good motives somehow, but what we're really doing is just being the critic, the cynic, the one who tears down instead of building up and edifying the body. Uh, anger, malice. It's interesting. I was in Peru and I was talking to a cab driver and he was honking his horn a lot. They do that. Most of the world, they do that, right? He's honking his horn a lot and I just laughed. He says, why are you laughing? It was, it was a cab driver, but he was a driver for the week and so we built a relationship. And I said, in America, you could get shot for that. And he, he just was confused. I said, in America, if you use your horn like that, uh, you're going to make people angry and we call it road rage. And literally someone could stop and it could start like a fight. And he looked at me and he says, why in the world would honking lead to violence? <laughs> it was the first time I'd ever thought about it. I'm like, that's a really good question. I think the answer is we carry a lot of self-dignity and pride around in our hearts. We're willing to be injured easily and get angry quickly. That's an American trait, an American nature maybe. It's not the nature of Christ. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Like, we should sing as Christians. It doesn't matter the style. It doesn't matter the instruments. There's something theological that we should be doing as converted people that we're singing together to let our hearts be kind of stirred up, that we come together, find thankfulness and gratitude, and that we go out rejoicing as light into this world, that somehow singing is tied up with our conversion. It's tied up with our community. It's tied up with what we do. And then it says this, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord God, uh, the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This was the big thing of the Reformation, solo deo gloria, that everything is to God's glory alone. That whether you were a, a blacksmith or whether you were a priest, whether you thought it was secular and common or whether it was sacred, 
all of that was equal. When you work at what you do, what you're called to do, what God has led you to do, what he's gifted you to do, what you're doing to be responsible as a parent or as someone earning wages or taking care of others, that what you're doing in your obedience to God, that you're doing it ultimately to bring him glory and to make him known. So how you do it and the thankfulness in your heart, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a policeman, whether you're a fireman, whether you work for the government, whether you work in a nonprofit, that whatever you do, when you're doing that, you're doing it to bring glory to God as you are responsibly living that out. And somehow how we sing as a a converted tribe here on Sunday mornings is, is going to lead into our ability to effectively do all we do to the glory of God. It's crazy. Why? Because every day we need our passion stirred again or, or our sense of desperation connected to the Lordship of Christ. That, that the answer to our pain and our struggle and our yearnings is to somehow identify with Christ and we remind ourselves as we sing and as we go out with thankfulness, we do our jobs differently. And as we do our jobs differently, we're bearing witness and we're getting the satisfaction of somehow understanding there's fellowship with the Spirit when we're walking with the Spirit, doing everything for the Spirit, it's this beautiful thing. That's conversion. It's true biblical New Testament conversion. And what we find here is that that's very different than cultural Christianity. There's an, a book that came out a number of years ago, just a couple of years ago actually, uh, by a a woman who teaches at Princeton, her name is Kenda Dean. And she wrote this book that really was talking about the hollowing out of Christianity. And I want to read just the intro. And she was mainly talking about the younger generations. And it says this, your child, according to her, is following a mutant form of Christianity. A mutant form of Christianity. And you as parents or teachers may be responsible. Dean says more American teenagers are embracing what she calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Translated, it's a watered-down faith that portrays God as a divine therapist whose chief goal is to boost people's self-esteem. The book is called Almost Christian. And she says that churches that have really bent um, along these lines don't give people enough to be passionate about Somehow the deepest longings of what we were created for aren't connected to this wild and very big God who demands all of our life but wants to give us life back in return. Rather, as we go through life, God, like Santa Claus, wants to just, because he's so happy, to just bless us with good things as we go but doesn't require anything of us. A couple quick things about this. Um, that God just simply wants us to feel good and do good. And no matter their background, Dean says, committed Christian teens in opposition to this share four traits. So the watered-down Christianity is all about self-esteem in themselves. True Christianity, she says, exhibits these four traits, that they have a personal story about God that they can share. They have a relationship because they walk with Christ daily. They have a deep connection to a faith community. It's not about me, it's about us, it's about the body, it's about we together gathering and singing our way through life. 
It's a sense of purpose. All that I do is for the glory of God and ultimately about a sense of hope about their future. Why? I have a confidence that when I've run this race, I will not be disqualified. So I'm excited about the finish line. I'm excited to get to that place and that time when I get to talk about the journey or the fight that I've been fighting. So Dean places a lot of the blame for this on the religious apathy of adults. What I was talking about with this new kind of seeker generation that came up, that some adults don't expect much from their youth pastors. They simply want to keep them away from drugs or premarital sex. Others practice a gospel of niceness where faith is simply doing good and not ruffling feathers. The Christian call to take risks, witness, and sacrifice for others is muted, she says. It's a pretty profound thing, but I ask myself, do I agree with with her conclusions? Is this what I see when I I walk around or if I'm in an airport, if I go to other places, or if I talk to, to people that have been in the church for a while? Do I see evidence of this? Do you see evidence of this? I think the answer is yes. We do. What do we do about it? We don't do anything about it. We look at the New Testament and realize that God has already done what we need. Our eyes just have to be open. Our ears have to be willing to hear it. And we have to sit in the New Testament scriptures and understand that there's this beautiful good news that Jesus died for our sins, to take away our sins, that we could be redeemed and reconciled into a relationship with God, that that would create a friendship, that we can go through life praying to God and actually having conversation with the God of the universe and then somehow having a purpose for our life and people to live our life with. And as we do that, that that leads to a life that we wouldn't trade for any pleasure or sin because it would break all that. And we know that our greatest sense of satisfaction and joy is to be found here, God alone is our true happiness, said Aquinas. And so in that, we realize, God, to you be the glory. All things are from, through, and to you. And I don't want to be anywhere else. I don't have to fix this. I just have to be willing to be honest. And we have to be willing to be honest with the challenges of what it means to truly be converted. Um. I studied this in seminary, but in the, in the 80s, there was what was called the self-esteem gospel. A guy by the name of Robert Schuller was a big part of this, and I have direct quotes from him in his book saying, that, saying this. Now, now follow with me here. Direct quotes saying, the problem with the Reformation in the 1500s was that it was too much of a God-centered Reformation. What we need today is a man-centered Reformation that speaks to the dignity and the value of each of us individually. The results of that are pretty profound. I don't know if you watched the buzz about um, famous pastor in, I don't like naming people, famous pastor in Texas, the wife, they're they're co-pastors of the largest church in America, and the comments she made about, this is really all about me at the end of the day. It's why I do these things for God. Or I I don't think she meant it. it. but that's what she said. And so there, there's like a buzz this week, right? The self-esteem gospel really is about me. That God or that Christianity ought to be growing me. That I ought to be feeling more and more grounded as this wonderful person with this great self-esteem. And when it's all about my self-esteem or when it, it becomes too much about me as an individual, 
What does that do to everything spiritual? God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, Christianity, the church. Those things serve what? Me. This is, this, is, this is the culture of faith that we have today in America. Parts of it exist in my heart. I'll be honest with you. I don't think you can exist in America, watch the shows we do, be online, do social media, do all of it, consumer society, and not have any traces of it. I, I see this in my own heart. I want it to be about me. Guess what? It's not about me. And when I think it's about me, I, I, the whole thing is broken. And I make an idol of myself and force God to somehow serve that idol. Something is bigger than God in my heart. True Christianity says God is at the center of the universe. To him be the glory that I find my identity when I orient myself properly to that. That that here, serving God, serving each other, getting outside of myself, love, which is not about myself, that somehow with these things, I find my true self and gain this great confidence and and this, this life that I would love and say, I don't want to be a miserable, selfish person with that kind of character. I want the fruit of the Spirit that allows me to be relational and to take myself not too seriously and to find my identity in community. I want that. I want true conversion. So let me just close by saying this. Um, that, uh, let's just boil it down to two things. Born again. So Jesus in John chapter 3 says, unless you're born again, you have no part in me. That phrase, uh, interestingly enough, side note, teaches over at Kilns College when we talk about the rise of the religious right and kind of modern evangelicalism but the phrase born again was big in southern baptist circles but the the rest of america didn't really know that phrase until um 1976 presidential election jimmy carter used it as a a, to identify himself as born again and then everyone was like what's that and that same year uh a book by the title born again came out chuck colson who had been arrested as part of watergate came out with this book called born again but the first time it was ever used in, in mass media was an interview with, with Carter um, when he was being interviewed about the presidential campaign. And, and it was an interview with Playboy magazine, which to me is just one of those crazy, fascinating, ironic things. Um, but that phrase is, is a real concept. And whatever we think about it culturally, have I really been willing to undergo this conversion that the old self would go and I'd be able to put on this new self and let the spiritual fruit begin to grow in me that would, would orient me as the right kind of person with regard to God, myself, and others. That I would have the right heart. Um, I was asked this morning by my daughters on the way to church, I, they know I hate cats, they always ask for cats and I always say no. So I was asked by my five-year-old, Dad, why do you hate cats? And my answer was, because a dog loves you. A cat only wants to be loved by you. And that makes all the difference. <laughs> and I think there's a, a cat theology that we can get caught up in <laughs> that is a heretical, a, 
uh, twisted form of, of, of theology. And then there's a, a dog theology that is true Christianity at, at its best. Um, where it really is about us orienting ourselves with regard to our prophet, our priest, our king, our savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ, the name above all names. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the question this morning, without any guilt, because I think our hearts long to be fully reconciled and to be close to our maker and our creator and our father. Um, we want that. So I'm not saying, are you converted so that you, you squirm or feel guilty? I'm saying, do you want to be converted? Are you converted? What are you holding on to and not, not being willing to let go of that's keeping you from Christ? Jesus came to save Christians. Paul said he was the chief of all sinners. May we all be willing to recognize that spot humbly, that I, even as a pastor, a preacher standing here, I'm the chief of all sinners. And I need grace, and I need salvation, and I need redemption, and I need closeness with my Savior. And so I can sit in that position of asking that question, God, how is that working? Jesus, you've, you've come to save Christians how is that working with me? Please do a work in my heart. Please strip me from anything that I would be holding on to that would keep me from you. Give me a greater desire for life so that I wouldn't just trifle around with sin or pleasure or all these things that are cotton candy to my soul, but that I would really find my way back to you because you alone constitute our true happiness. Father, thank you. Thank you for making yourself known. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for taking it upon yourself to do what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you that you are bringing your kingdom and that we can truly pray that, that thy kingdom would come and that we can live in that space and know those joys Give us a yearning and a passion and a heart and a desire to fight a fight, to be converted, to be with you, to not be ashamed. We pray that in Jesus' name.